Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and we welcome you back uh, this week for another edition of the show. Here we are in the middle of an election process, which will culminate here in less than two weeks. But in the midst of that, and while you're being bombarded by all kinds of, of state and national media in terms of the election, I wanted to take the opportunity this week and next week uh, to focus on some critical issues that are happening right now in Texas and issues that most likely will be at the focus of some efforts in the next legislative session uh, to address. Uh, before we get to our guests today, though, uh, to do that, I want to remind you that you can listen to us right here on KTRL FM 90.5 each Sunday at noon, also online at tarletonradio.com, and be sure to follow us on Facebook where we post related articles to the issues and the interviews that we have on the show. Also encourage you to look at uh, podcasts that are available either through Amazon or also through SoundCloud because they're always available previous shows, but also this show will be available after the show airs on Sunday where you can download and listen. So this week we welcome Dr. Melody Loya, who is the department chair of the Department of Social Work in our College of Health Sciences and Human Services here at Tarleton State. And I've asked her to come on the show today, uh, not only because of her experience as a uh, in this field and her experience as a academic, uh, but also a, a, a practitioner and someone that has focused on training people uh, in the area of social work. But I wanted to start out by asking uh, Dr. Loya uh, to tell our listeners a little more about the type of work that social workers do in Texas. I, I, as we've seen on this show many times when we dig into these areas, uh, there's a disconnect sometimes from people and what they understand about what people do or what uh, state agencies provide or what is actually going on and, and what's the purpose of that work. And I think it's always helpful, in, especially in this case, to kind of put some very uh, concrete understanding there about what is social work, uh, and then how, how is that carried out uh, in the state of Texas? So welcome. We're glad to have you on the show, and uh, uh, that's our first question. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Morrow, very much for allowing me to come on and visit, um, especially about social work. I'm passionate about the profession, and there truly are a lot of myths about the profession of social work. Many people don't know that we are a licensed profession and to call yourself a social worker to begin with, you have to have a degree, either a bachelor's degree or a master's degree and then get the license and you cannot test for the license, uh, take the exam unless you have the appropriate degree. A lot of people think we only work in protective services, but we are found working with people across the lifespan. So we might work with a family who's trying to navigate having a baby and NICU, you know, preemie that's in the hospital for weeks, the social worker can navigate all of that all the way through end of life issues and hospice. We work with the um, justice system. We work in adoption and foster care, the military, the veterans administration, uh, just across the lifespan. We, are, we also have, um, we can become licensed clinicians at the master's level. So I actually have a license to do therapy and a lot of people don't know that either. So we can become licensed clinical social workers and provide therapeutic services. So 
in terms of Texas as a state and the, and really the need for social work, I mean, I teach in the area of government and see some of the challenges and how, how is this structured throughout the state in terms of social work itself? I mean, is, is this on a, 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 not just a, you know, state agency or state funded initiative, but is it divided up in by county or how is that structured in order to then address specific areas that you mentioned within different parts of the state? Right, there are um, state agencies that hire and govern much of what we do, but there's also county uh, agencies and then a lot of private or individual agencies. Some of them are faith-based, many are not, but all of those uh, services are there to support people in need. And as you mentioned, Texas is one of the, we rank one of the highest in uninsured folks. And so we don't have a lot of support systems in Texas. We are not very social service friendly. And so uh, pre-COVID, we already had a lot of inequality. We had a, a wide disparity in income, people without resources, and not a lot of support nets for those people. So a lot of private agencies end up picking up that slack. Um, COVID has truly impacted that inequality and increased those challenges for people. With the high rate of uninsured people in Texas, many people have to use the ER, the emergency rooms, as their primary health care, which impacts not only their own health care, but ultimately our economy. When you have 5 million people without insurance, it's going to impact our economy overall. So when we look at that in, uh, across the state and, and kind of the, the quality of life issues, I always kind of approach it that way and looking at what's the state's role in addressing critical social issues, because the end goal there is not, a lot of people, I think, confuse that with thinking that, okay, well, you're just providing things to people for free. Uh, they don't think about that they may not have access to that because there's something preventing them. Either it is their income or either it's their uh, employment status or it's their lack of insurance uh, that, that, that keeps them from having access. And so I try to frame it in terms of quality of life issues. But when we talk about some of the significant challenges in the state that, that social workers engage with. I know some, a lot of people will think, okay, uh, working with children, working with uh, uh, in, in homes and uh, dealing with critical issues that are going on that may uh, be affecting uh, a child's well-being. But there's a lot of other areas, as you mentioned, but what, what are some of the most critical that we see in the state, both, uh, I think, pre-pandemic and now that we're in this, I mean, some of those have certainly heightened in terms of their, the challenges that are there. I think the higher level of poverty in the state of Texas, and ultimately that impacts all of us. And then there's a, a big disparity in access to services between urban areas and rural areas. So rural areas truly have difficulty uh, having access to those services. So transportation might be an issue. We don't have a lot of public transportation. And so to get from rural Erath County into Stephenville, for example, for services can be a challenge. And so transportation is a huge issue. And I think people have a, a bit of a misconception about what welfare is. We hear welfare and we automatically think of those needs-based programs like Medicaid and TANF, mm -hmm. uh, food stamps, SNAP, but really welfare, social welfare is much broader than that. So Medicare, Social Security, VA benefits, public education, subsidized student loans, all of those are forms of 
welfare. And I wish that we had a broader view of what welfare is. So we didn't just see it as the safety net programs, but we see it as programs that help lift people up out of poverty. One of the, one of the best tools to lift people out of poverty has been the earned income tax credit. And a lot of people wouldn't see that as a welfare program, but it is. So I think if we had a broader view of it and we could see that we all benefit if we are a more equal and just society. But yeah, I agree with you about the term because I think we're we're so used to hearing that, and for many people who are who, who look at that and and then think, okay, well, uh, why are people not able to uh, address these things and then be more independent in terms of being able to to take care of all of the different issues? And and I like to use the word well-being a lot in that that relates re directly to quality of life. You know how we and, and I would assume and please. Uh, let, let me know here if I need to adjust this somewhat, but that that uh, uh, social workers are, are out there doing what they're doing uh, for that that goal of a, a better well-being for individuals and, and families and communities uh, so that they can get to a level that that they're not in need of, of, of a wide range of assistance. Uh, and, and of course, that varies. I mean, I think sometimes in these conversations, people look at that in general ways and they think about, okay, well, the elderly, the disabled, the uh, children, you know, there's a, there's a large portion of those resources and services that are going to help people that in, in some ways can't do the, uh, some of the things that they need to do for themselves. But, but uh, that, that, that being focused to me is a much healthier uh, look at this in terms of what we're trying to accomplish. I don't know if, if that, if that is a good approach or not, I'm just trying, I think I'm throwing that out there to say, how do we get people to think differently about this? Well, and that, that resonates with me because as a social worker, we are looking at enhancing people's social functioning. So enhancing their overall well-being, uh, because in the end, we truly do all benefit from that, from having um, equal opportunity. And so we think, well, you know, they can just go pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but some people don't have the boots to do that. So to provide right. the supports early on for families so they don't get entrenched in poverty would be to me a much better solution than putting, trying to put a Band-Aid on social issues after the fact. Right, right. Well, let, let's turn to the issue at hand. Uh, so this past week, this, this Texas State Board of Social Work Examiners uh, voted unanimously to change its code of conduct based on the recommendation of the governor uh, that uh, this code of conduct establishes when a social worker may refuse to serve someone. So the basically the code will no longer prohibit social workers from turning away clients on the basis of disability, sexual orientation, or gender identity. Now, the legislature in its last session that, that allowed the governor uh, more latitude in in terms of some of these issues related to state boards and aid uh, that that lead state agencies. So uh, that that's one part of this. But the other part of it is uh, here you have a board that made this decision, and there there uh, seems to be a significant pushback on this uh, in a, in a number of ways. And so um, in terms of that, I wanted to uh, ask in in your in the work in in social uh, work and the way that social workers go about doing their work, what is the direct impact of this? The concern is that by changing our code of conduct, uh, which is based on our 
code of ethics established by the National Association of Social Workers, that it opens the door for discriminatory practices. And that is totally antithetical to our profession. So our profession has core values, service, social justice, competency, the importance of human relationships, integrity, and the dignity and worth of all persons. And so when you look at those overarching core values, this change in our code of conduct gives permission for those to be violated. Uh, in a perfect world, it would not make a difference because all social workers should be living by those core values of the profession that they signed on to when they became licensed. But it's very concerning and it, it, could, it could trickle down to other, other um, areas. So disabilities, gender identity, gender expression, LGBTQ plus issues, what's next? What's next on the list of people that we could discriminate against? And that code of conduct establishes the standards by which we are judged. And so I can be openly under this, I could be openly discriminatory towards these populations and under the code of conduct, no one could make a complaint against me. And I just think that violates everything about the, the profession of social work and what we stand for. So, so we know some of this, and I, I'm not asking you to get into the politics on, on this. That's my job on this show, and we try to look at it in an informative way. And, and so some of this is certainly motivated by uh, that there has been an, a, a, a focus uh, by those in, in governance against the LGBTQ uh, or people who identify as, as LGBTQ. So we saw that uh, several sessions ago when the transgender bathroom debate came up and uh, that kind of died in a special session because it was very clear it would have an economic impact on the state. Uh, but there still has been this uh, 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 an agenda really in trying to uh, push back against the broadening of, of laws in order to be more inclusive and to not have gender identity or sexual orientation become an issue in terms of, of state services and in terms of protecting uh, uh, or maintaining or, or promoting a level of equality. Uh, so the the one part that's one part of it, and I think we can identify that there there is a political focus there. And and, and if you have, I, I think part of this would be is that where where is that coming from outside of say our political leaders? Is there a push within you know among social workers, or are there people out there that are looking at, at this in a particular way. The, the other side of it that I just don't quite understand is, is the disability part. I mean, I, uh, to me, we, I mean, to me, this is going to be challenged probably in the courts uh, 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 based on um, uh, discriminatory uh, elements, not just on the LGBTQ, but I think also on disabilities. But I, I just, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around how all this was thrown together in this way. And then you would have a unanimous decision by the board to, uh, to, to give social workers latitude into whether they engage with a person or not. Or again, another question would be process, right? How do you actually go about disabilities are, and many of them are visible, but there are many that are not. So I don't know if you have any insight onto, into that and how that actually affects the, the work that social workers do when they're out doing, doing the jobs that, that, uh, uh, that they're doing. I, I guess the, the long-term consequences of this remain to be seen, but like I started off with, with our core values, I truly hope that social workers would 
ignore that this is part of our code of conduct, giving them permission to discriminate. And we're, we're trained to set aside personal values. So I don't have to change my value. I don't have to change my personal belief in something, but I need to set that aside. And I, I really don't understand the focus on disability. And then, you know, the LGBTQ plus community has had an uphill battle in Texas. I looked over the last legislative session and there were a lot of bills put forth to protect rights that were, they never made it out of committee or they weren't heard. And so I think that's just an uphill battle in this state. But at the end of the day, um, I hope social workers view clients as people and exercise that dignity and worth of all persons and not decide on what is what person is of value and what person is not. Because if I'm not going to serve someone that I believe should not be living the way they're living, then that opens up the whole door for, right. you know, all these other things that are immoral behaviors that may be based on my moral standards and, and not someone else's. So I hope that makes sense. That it, it, it does because it, it, it often, I would say it puts a lot more, um, uh, pressure on on social workers because instead of just here's a need and I'm meeting that need uh, now those personal opinions or views those things come into play and 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 is leaving it with that individual to make that decision and 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 really I would say in a lot of the issues you're dealing with some of those are are, are life and death decisions I mean you're you're working social workers are in areas where the services they could pr provide. Uh, and the, the resources and the guidance they provide could mean that difference in someone uh, uh, living or, or not. Uh, I mean, it, it becomes that critical at times, I think. And, and, and that, that places a heavy responsibility there on, on meeting a need. And, and it's basically saying we're, we're, we're making that conditional uh, because, and the conditions are who you are, how you live, you know, what you do, what you believe, or that kind of thing. And, and that, that, that is a slippery slope. And it, it just, it, it opens it wide open. Uh, so I, I, earlier this year, I, I did an interview with the uh, communications director for Equality Texas. And, and part of it was looking at the next legislative session in terms of their agenda to address LGBTQ issues. And this was actually coming out of the, after the Supreme Court ruling about employment law and the, the changes for worker protections and so forth. So uh, I, I know certainly this is going to be on their agenda in terms of trying to propose legislation and, and get changes. Do you see uh, any uh, activity or work among either social workers or professional organizations that are connected to social workers and where they're kind of landing on this. Uh, uh, I, I ask that because my wife's a school teacher and so she belongs to those professional associations that kind of track these things. And when government makes a decision that is not well received, then their work is to lobby and to try to address or change that. And and uh, so without you know necessarily getting into the politics of it, I'm more concerned of what do we see going forward in terms of how this might be addressed in the upcoming legislative session or within the profession itself? Right, well, there's been a national outcry. It's been um, validating and um, encouraging to see how many people are advocating for uh, social work as a profession in the state of Texas. So our largest professional group, the National Association of Social Workers is rallying support as is our Texas branch and so there's going to be several forums, town halls, 
Uh, we also have some social workers in the legislature. And so I would suspect that there will be some legislation forthcoming based on these things that have happened in the last uh, week. Um, an online petition has garnered already over 15,000 uh, signatures. Um, so I think it's pulling people together and people that have a stake in this are being asked to contact Governor Abbott's office and being asked to advocate with the Texas Behavioral Health um, Executive Council, which governs the Texas State Board of Social Work Examiners. There's um, a board meeting for the TBHEC coming up. And so people are being encouraged to, to use their voice. And so, um, and you can use your voice in either direction if you support it, because it really is, um, I see it as a professional issue that needs to be um, changed, that we need to go back to where we were and protect those. But um, at the end of the day, we have personal choices to make. And so I, I do see it coming down to um, some new, legislate, new legislation that would protect um, the rights of those folks not to be discriminated against. Because you know, I always teach my students that you don't know the client really when they walk in the door. And so I'm working with a client and working with a client and then suddenly find out that the underlying issue is that they're not getting along with their family because they've come out. Do I then, can I then dismiss that client and say, no, I don't want to work with you because I don't do that. Um, the suicidal client that calls because they're struggling with their gender identity, I can say, no, I'm sorry, I don't do transgender. Um, it just opens a whole can of worms. So I do think there will be some uh, legislation to address it. But in the meantime, for me, it's a moral and a professional issue to uphold the standards of my profession. One of this too, in a, in a context here of, of other issues that I've been tracking as well. One of the things that I've continued to see over the, since the last legislative session, and I'm, I'm anxious to see how some of these issues are going to be addressed, but we, we seem in this, in our state to be uh, part of its constricted resources or, or where, how resources are allocated. But uh, a lot of these affect social work. I mean, I, we've seen challenges with services that we deliver to children, uh, to the elderly, uh, to those with mental health issues. Uh, it, it just seems like that those who are having some level of, of struggle within our, our society who are in most need of some of those services and those resources are, are there continue to be either obstacles put in the way or the services are just not there. And, 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 for me, that's a that that's a very strong kind of open criticism of the way we see the role of government in this state. Uh, that that while yes, we've got a we're challenged, you know, with resources, we've got to find a way to use those resources related to quality of life, and 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 that's not just getting everybody a job. I mean, there there are there there are limitations to that as well. And so I don't I don't know. It, it, to me, it. it Tells me that the, the profession that you're in and that you train people to do is a very challenging one in this state, and and that it's uh, and that we've got to all be aware and then advocate more to try to see more uh, done to to make that better and to try to use whatever our, our our focus of the role of government is, but we it needs to have a bigger role uh, in all of this. And, and I don't, how, uh, and I'll just ask this, you know, kind of in, in, in wrapping this up, but how do you prepare uh, students and, and those who come who are 
who are going to go out and be social workers in this environment? And what 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 do you what are the kind of focal points to helping them understand the context like that they're they're going to be working in? Yeah, we we truly try to give them a holistic perspective of human need, human suffering, human possibility. And so from the micro level of working with individual families up to how do you write a policy brief that you could present to a legislator about the issues that impact your clients, we teach them that policy impacts practice and practice should impact policy. And so those things that happen at the top are not out of my reach. And I need to have a voice as a social worker and advocate for my clients. So we teach them those skills, you know, social work, started out as a very macro-based profession with the settlement houses that went into communities and did try to enhance that social functioning. And so trying to get students to see that broader picture of it's not just about the individual relationship with the adolescent that comes into my office that needs help, but what's going on with the family, what's going on in the community, what's happening at school. And so really training them with the tools they need to operate at multiple levels of practice. And that's really what sets social work apart from other professions is we aren't just focused on that individual's functioning, but we should be also looking at the influences of policy, the influence of society, embedded structural inequalities, racism, sexism, ableism, all the isms that impact our clients. We really should be addressing those at all levels of practice. And so hopefully we're giving our students the tools to go out and do that with whatever population they, they decide to work with. Well, I wanna thank you for that insight uh, because I think that helps all of us broaden our understanding of, of, of social work and what, not only what, it, what social workers engage in, but also the, the tools and the, uh, just the, the, the intellectual and, and I would say probably uh, uh, even spiritual engagement uh, with it because it, it is a service and, and there and it definitely there has to be uh, a concern and compassion for those in need to be able to to do that kind of work. So I, I want to thank you for joining us today. This is excellent and has to put this in context and, and look ahead and see how this might be addressed uh, in the coming legislative session. So thank you and I hope we can have you back on when we have other issues come up in, in social work in the state because I we, we do on this show move around from local to state uh, to federal issues, but especially in Texas, some of the more challenging issues that that kind of our rank and file person in this state may not just have all the information they need to make a good, uh, uh, form a good opinion about what government should be doing in that area. So, so thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Dr. Morrow. We are going to take a quick break and we will be back with more on politics. Politics can be confusing, but on politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow here at Tarleton State University and right here each week 
at 12 noon on Sunday on KTRL 90.5 FM, streaming online at tarletonradio.com, and also available as a podcast through Amazon Podcast or download or listen on SoundCloud, as well as connect with us on Facebook at On Politics with Eric Morrow. So we want to thank Dr. Loya again for joining us and giving us that insight into social work some of the challenges that are currently happening uh, with the recent decision by the Board of Social Work Examiners, uh, as well as just understanding what social workers do and what are some of the current issues that they are facing uh, in the state of Texas and in trying to uh, do the work that they're doing. And as I said at the beginning of the show, uh, we are focusing on other issues. You you can get lots of information on what's going on with the election, and we're going to get to something about the election in just a moment. But uh, of course, uh, you can find all kinds of information about the third debate uh, this past week and all kinds of analysis. And there are other issues and other things going on. And so that's where we can offer something unique uh, to our listeners uh, and to others uh, through focusing on specific issues. In fact, next week, we're hoping to welcome uh, Charlie Stenholm on the show, a, a, a great friend of Tarleton and a former uh, congressman to talk about rural health care, uh, because that is such a significant issue here in Texas. But again, we are here to focus on issues that are critical in our region, around the state, and around the country as well. And one of those that came out this week that is related to the election is the use of information, of voting registration information, and the attempts at cyber attacks on our voting system coming from both Russia and China. And so Trump administration officials, Homeland Security officials have come out and identified this. There were several news conferences. Uh, there's numerous articles confirming uh, this attempt to try to disrupt elections in this country. And of course, one of those was the use of, of open record voter registration information. So it, this was not necessarily related to a hack into uh, secure data or anything like that, but it, it does raise concerns as well. And that was the use of uh, cyber terrorists in Iran in trying to uh, use voter intimidation. So sending out an email uh, which these are called perception hacks in the in the language. It's a, a way of trying to change people's view about the candidates or the elections through trying to influence them in some way, whether it's through emails or through social media. And so this email went to voters in Florida, registered voters in Florida, uh, that was uh, trying to influence them in some way in the way that they see the election, uh, try, trying to um, uh, influence them against uh, President Trump. Some of these spoofed emails sent to Democratic voters uh, were purported to be from pro-Trump far-right groups uh, that were threatening, you know, and saying, uh, we, we know how you will vote and so on. Uh, these things are probably going to happen. This is going to be a regular thing that we're going to hear about over the next week as we get closer to the election are these attempts by uh, foreign governments or by uh, cyber terrorist groups in other countries attempting to have some influence on the outcome of the election. Of course, the focus here is to be disruptive, to be disruptive to not just the election itself, 
uh, but to politics in this country and to the society as a whole in our engagement with politics, with elections, uh, with, in this case, our trust of the outcome in voting. And so one of the things that I wanted to point out with this is I heard a, a very good interview with the Dep Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, Ken Cuccinelli, in talking about uh, what the way that we need to understand this. So first of all, he, he was very clear in pointing out that if we have evidence, if we see things happen that are unusual, that are an, an attempt to uh, uh, to influence voting in this way, emails, hacks, those kinds of things, then there is a reporting system that has been set up uh, by the federal government uh, through the, uh, the, the Center for Information Security. And uh, through this, you can go onto their website, cisa.gov, cisa.gov, and when you get there on that site, there's a button up on the upper right-hand corner that you can click to report uh, cybersecurity events and, and concerns that you may have so that they can proceed to investigate if they're not doing so already. But the other thing that he was trying to emphasize here, what we've seen with these cyber attacks on anything related to state and local government, to uh, voting in, in this case, and trying to get information or trying to have some kind of influence is that we 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 have not seen attacks that have uh, in, in interfered with actual casting of votes. Okay, and I think this is where uh, our security agencies and government are very important at this time because the system that we have uh, often separates that kind of of digital access. Okay, and let me explain what I'm talking about here because we can give the example of how we vote here. I'm going to be an election judge here in about a week and a half and I've been through the training and when you go in to vote and they print out your ballot based on where you live and you go to the machine and you enter that ballot, all of these systems uh, are, are not directly connected uh, virtually, they're not they're not connected in a way that you can infiltrate into a particular thing. The the voting uh, equipment itself is is a uh, a machine where you're putting your ballot into it, a paper ballot in which you're marking the ballot by using the digital screen. You are marking it, and once you mark it and you finish, it comes back out, and then you go and feed it into another machine that is actually tallying the votes. Okay. And it's tallying it right there on that piece of equipment. It's not uh, uh, tallying uh, those, those votes and then the, the sending that information off somewhere else. There's a secure system by which they view that and then they report the vote. The vote. Uh, and then they'll, of course, certify the vote later on once all of the counting of the votes is done. The other part of this that was emphasized was that we're doing this differently across 50 state plus states and territories because elections are administered by each state. So each state has different measures, different systems that they use down to the county level, down to the, the community level uh, in which this it's very difficult. There's no standardization here, no standardization. The only standard is the integrity of the election and how you go about doing that, what equipment you use, what what resources you use and so on, that's gonna vary from one state to another. So I think what we see in this, and this is what really what I wanna emphasize is we, we've gotta be very careful during this time 
that we are uh, maintaining our trust in our local and state officials to carry out these elections and to, to do them with integrity, to protect those elections, to know that we have systems in place because of that diversity in the way we carry out elections that make it very difficult uh, for uh, any foreign power to, to access that information, to try to influence, to try to change vote tallies and so forth. I, I think we, we, we really can see that and we see Homeland Security and we see other departments of government that are affirming that. So I want us to, to really think about that when we hear about these attacks that very often they're on ways to try to influence voters and what they do and their actions and their perceptions. That's why it's called a, a perception hack. You're trying to change the way people view the integrity of the election or the way that they view the, uh, the way the election is being handled or to, to threaten like the emails from Iran that were threatening uh, some action towards someone if they voted in a particular way. So this is very critical to keep it in perspective to kind of understand the complexity of it, uh, but also to know that our state, local and federal officials are working very hard uh, to maintain the integrity of our voting, uh, to the integrity of the outcome of our elections and, and really focus on making sure, and I think this is why we'll never see a national system that is fully online or that, that's integrated, that will also not see online voting. I think online voting is, is something that just opens that up, just like we do online banking, that, that, that just creates uh, another realm or sphere, I would say, in which, which there is the possibility of hacking into it and changing the outcome. That, that we're a long way away from that if it ever happens, because part of the security of our system is the fact that it is so uh, disparate, it's so divided up, it's, it's different from one state to the next, and it's disconnected. There's not this kind of seamless connection of the technology uh, in terms of its accessibility online or uh, via uh, the potential of a hack. So please keep that in mind as you think about voting. Of course, we're seeing record turnout in early voting. Uh, that's great to see as well. Uh, but it's also important to understand that, that we need to understand these complex issues and really how they affect our perceptions of what is happening uh, in our own country and that our officials are working very hard to counter this and to make sure that uh, we have a safe and secure election. So I want to turn now as we wrap up the show today uh, to talk about another uh, area that we've given some attention to in the past. And this, of course, is related to the election, but it's, it's actually asking us to kind of look beyond the election and to look ahead. Some of this came out of a conversation I've had with a colleague in recent weeks on the area of civil religion. Okay, civil religion, and we've talked about it in this country, uh, on the show before, in this country, that civil religion is the symbols that align with our identity as Americans. Uh, some may have some religious connotations, but they may take the, the 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 kind of the place of religious symbols. And so, some of these could be anything from the flag to "In God We Trust" on our uh, money. It's those outward expressions that are common across our country uh, that connect us to the idea of being an American. 
and uh, have elements of patriotism. Yes, at times elements of nationalism as well. The other side of this is also uh, in this conversation we were having was about shared values. Uh, what and really looking at what what provides the glue? What holds us together? What what are what are areas and things that we can come together around to affirm what we share uh, rather than what separates us? And I think this is very critical anytime we have a, a, a presidential election, we have national elections, and the outcome may not be what many people wanted. And certainly given the partisan nature of our politics right now, looking at the numbers of support on both sides, Republican, Democrats, President Trump, former Vice President Biden, that there will be many people uh, that no matter who wins, the outcome of this election will not be what they want. And our, our, our uniqueness here as Americans for as long as we have existed as a nation has been to accept the outcome of these elections. Now we've had challenges and tensions and issues develop out of that in the past. We can go back to the uh, 1800s and look at the impact of elections on what led to the Civil War and what followed the Civil War that had an impact on the nation as a whole. But if we look past, uh, look back over our history, uh, we see this transition of power. We see the, the acceptance of outcomes, whether there's a transition of power or not. We move forward and we work within our political system uh, in order to work for the outcomes that we want. But we do it in a way that attempts to find some continuity and some collaboration and, and work forward in identifying what we do share in common as uh, residents of this country, as citizens of this nation. And so in this conversation that we were having over civil religion and, and shared values, the, what it made me think about as we approach the, the coming election is, is where are we going to find uh, those things that we do share and how is that going to guide us forward? And, and this is very challenging right now. And this is where my challenge comes to you as a listener and as a citizen of this country and as hopefully someone engaged in what is happening and, and wanting to work uh, toward uh, uh, beneficial outcomes for us all. And so the focus here uh, in, in looking at this is for us to ask ourselves, what represents those ideals, those foundational ideals, the character and the values of who we are as Americans, as, as citizens of the United States and, of, and supporters of what we have in terms of our freedom, in terms of our system of governance, in terms of our security as a country, and I go back to some of the things that we've looked at before. Some would say, and this is where the conversation led that I had with a colleague, that civil religion represents that, that we have all these symbols of, of America, of the United States of America, and those symbols represent uh, those values. And that's challenging because we see many people using those symbols uh, in ways that promote uh, discord in ways that promote uh, uh, limiting the freedoms of some people in ways that even openly promote racism. 
And that that's not good. That, I mean, that's that's using symbols that we all ascribe to or we all look to in inappropriate ways that are not about cohesiveness and, and about toleration and collaboration and community and engagement, but are much more about dividing us as a nation. On the other side of it, I go back to what we've discussed in terms of the role of higher education in a thriving democracy and the values that we do as a part of our civic engagement efforts here at Tarleton State. And just to, to read back through this list, I want you to reflect and think about these in terms of what we share with other human beings that live here together with us. And we're trying to emphasize the things that help us move forward in a productive way, not necessarily in a way that says we're always going to agree that the political and policy outcomes will always be what everyone wants, but that we still have these fundamental values that guide the way that we relate to each other. So that list includes dignity, humanity, decency, honesty, curiosity, imagination, wisdom, courage, community, participation, stewardship, resourcefulness, and hope. So these are, these are critical values that, again, I would say in some sense are represented within those symbols that identify us for who we are. They're represented in our history. They're represented in the ideals that are foundational uh, for our society and for how we've structured the way we live together and the way we govern ourselves. Uh, but they're also the, very, very critical in our conversations, in the work that we do together, in our collaborations, in all of the things that we do that help us lead our country and our society forward, that, that help us to uh, find a way to work together, to appreciate each other, to respect each other, and to uh, make this work, uh, to, to find stability, to continually go back to those foundational ideals for which this country was established. And no matter what the outcome of a, an election, no matter what the outcome on a specific policy, we are still ultimately committed to those ideals and that we identify the values that we share that make this work. That's what I think is the challenge facing us in this election. The outcome is something that if we have this faith and trust in our system of governance that we have to accept. If we are abiding by the rule of law, then we accept that outcome and we move forward. What I'm advocating here and what I'm emphasizing is that no matter what the outcome is, where we turn after the election is what we have in common. What we have in common as members of this society, as citizens of this nation, of what binds us together to be able collectively to work through our problems and challenges, to engage with the role of government, although we'll differ on, on what that role is on a variety of issues, but we work through those processes in order to maintain a stable country, to, to emphasize liberty of the people who are here, of all of us, and that we use the, the system that we have to work toward the outcomes that we want. Not to circumvent it, not go beyond it, not resort to violence, uh, not to uh, take matters into our own hands, not to advocate that we restrict the freedom of others so that we can get what we want. 
that we maintain these ideals and these values uh, in order uh, for the benefit of us all. So that is what I am asking you to think about as we approach the election. Uh, again, looking beyond the outcome. The outcome is going to be the outcome. It's going to be who wins the election in terms of the votes and the electoral college at the level of the president and voting as we move further down in terms of national elections and elections in our states. Uh, but beyond that, our focus must be on how we make this work together and how we, we, we don't give up. We don't look at any of these outcomes as a, a, a deterioration and a, a, a slide away from who we should be and what we represent and the values that we share, but a need to re-emphasize those values and to find ways to work together to address the challenges that are before us. So I ask you to reflect on that. I come back to that from time to time because it's a focus of, of the work that I do in teaching government classes, but also think it's a critical role that we have here on politics to not get into the, the, the mire of the partisanship that we see. Certainly we analyze it from time to time, but this is not a partisan show. It's not about picking sides. It's, it's about uh, having the level of analysis and the level of information we need to be able to remain committed to the processes that we have, to the system of governance that we have, and to find our way forward in working through that and identifying and understanding our shared values and who we are and why that is important for our society, for future generations, and for the world. So I want to thank you today for joining us on politics. I invite you to be with us next week as we look forward to hosting uh, Charlie Stenholm and talking about rural health care, but I also uh, encourage you to go back and listen to previous episodes on SoundCloud or download where you get your podcast and check us out on Facebook where I will post some related articles uh, to the issues that we've discussed today. That's it for me on politics. We'll look forward to being with you again next week right here on KTRL 90.5 FM. from me, Taylor Welch, and me, Carissa Cole. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.